So I made the decision to go smart casual. Thank you. Thank you, Hi, this is Jeff Innocent welcoming you to another episode of Smart Casual. Our guest today is comedian, writer and former TV executive, Callie Beaton. Callie and I spoke about a number of things, including what it was like for her to go to an all-boys school, how she carved out a career in the television industry, which ultimately led to her being encouraged to take up stand-up by a legendary American comedian. We also discussed her ambitions, which includes attempting to take on more difficult subjects on stage. So please enjoy this episode of Smart Casual with me, Jeff Innocent, and my guest, Callie Beaton. Our guest today on Smart Casual is a comedian who I've been trying to spend some time with since we first met not least because I was instantly attracted to her engaging personality and dress sense, and also because in the world of stand-up comedy, I almost never get to spend time with comedians who are over 40, (laughs) particularly not a new comedian, which means that she will not make fun of me having printed out this introduction in very large, bold print, (laughs) or the fact that I'm even using paper. But primarily because she makes me laugh on stage and off. Now, until this point, I have never got to spend any time with her at all, even on the rare occasions when I'm on the same bill as her. And I think, great, we can hang out. But by the time I'm off stage, she's already left the building. (laughs) So I can only conclude that she's been avoiding me and I've not actually been getting the hint. So... (laughs) <laughs> I've rather ingeniously outmaneuvered her this time by setting up a podcast with the sole objective of inviting her on as a guest. <laughs> Described by Antipodean comedy goddess Sarah Pascoe as a comedy queen, fiery, intelligent, and totally original, please welcome to the smart, casual studio, Callie Beaton. <laughs> Thank you. you What a a lovely introduction. That was that was your way of saying you're always closing, you're always headlining, and I'm opening. So thank you for that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're you're being avoiding me. I know what's going on. It took me ages to work it out. So I thought, listen, get a podcast, get her on. That'll do. Now, um, I want to first apologise for the rather austere, blokey conditions here in the studio because I know you have your own podcast, which I imagine has got curtains and tablecloths and eau puree and small wicker baskets. That's what I imagine. Am I right? <laughs> so It's, it's so very much like the Groucho Club where so I do yeah. my, uh, my podcast. Yeah, my, uh, only I own the building. Yeah, it's lovely. So, so I reckon this must seem like, you know, when you go out to a bloke's flat for the first time and realise immediately from, like, socks drying on the radiator and washing up in the sink that you might have made a mistake. So that's, <laughs> I'm hoping that's not the Welcome to my world, Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you understand what I'm going through. <laughs> We'll talk about your podcast later on, but um, I, uh, 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 my first question, uh, excuse me if I'm going to be chronological and linear, but you grew up in Dorset, is that right? I did, in Dorset, yeah, I did. And, 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 and I think your parents were teachers? My parents were teachers, and I was educated in a boys' school. Okay. Yeah. 
How did that work out? Did you well, pretend not well, that really. you <laughs> No, I'd, I never done well pretending I'm a boy. Uh, no, my parents taught in a boys' school, and okay. so uh, it was a boys' boarding school, and we lived in the grounds of the school. No way. I can see your producer's like, shit, I've never heard that this sort so of thing before. That is so posh. Um, so, uh, well, posh or just... As, well, we didn't have money because my parents were teachers, so okay. we weren't... I wasn't in the school because we had money. They, that's just where they worked. The people in the school, the other kids, had money and were male. Did they so, know that you didn't have money? So, or? Well, I mean, I guess so, because teachers... You know, mm-hmm. teachers don't have sure. money. So we were living in a house my parents paid. A fif- uh, this is going to make me sound like a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> my parents paid 50p a year in rent. <laughs> but that was <laughs> only because <laughs> you had to pay something. It was one of those, like, you know, doing a contract for sure. one, one pound. So they did. So they were, we did. Yeah, we didn't have money. So being a teacher's <laughs> kid <laughs> and the wrong gender for the school, not the wrong gender for life, was um, a really weird thing. So, yes, that was... So they didn't dress you up as a boy and you have to Well, there wasn't, like. the girl, there wasn't, like, a girl's uniform because it was a boy's mm-hmm. school. So you, you sort of wore... I mean, I got really good at, you know, rugby, uh, cricket. <laughs> uh, so I was... It was a strange start in that's life. Fantastic. So from 8 to 13, I was that's educated fanta- with boys. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, well, amazing's one word for it. Yeah. yeah, not enough therapy in all the world. I bet you can fight as well in that. Oh, yeah, I'm a real. St- I mean, That's not seeing brilliant. me at the clubs. That's why I've normally left by the time you're Just on because I've been thrown out. <laughs> they're like, oh, she's she's kicked off again. So, so <laughs> was, it, was it like one of those? Also, one of those sort of uh, idyllic. Enid Blyton type Dorset going to the beach and looking for fossils. No, because I lived like in no- I lived in North Dorset. It's no beach, oh, so Dorset's okay. a weird shape. It's like a sort of um, it's, it, yeah, it, the north bit sticks up in an odd way between Devon and Somerset. This will be the most boring thing anyone ever says on your podcast. So the geography of North Dorset <laughs> is nowhere near the coast. So yeah, people oh, think okay. of Bournemouth and Pool and Sandbanks. Sure. No, nowhere near that. So there was no, it was beautiful, but it wasn't near the sea. So what did you, what was it like a posh boys boarding school? Yeah, then doing really posh. posh stuff? Like uh, so, Princess Anne's subject? children went there. So Bazaar oh, and Peter wow. Phillips went there, and lots of famous people's. Um, Dame Edna Everidge's kids went there. It was Barry Humphreys, wow. I believe, as he yeah, is actually yeah. known. So it was no, it was a really. It actually is an amazing. It's a, it's a school called Port Regis in Dorset. Okay. Um, so it's obviously a well known. It's a well known school. school. Well, but it, and it's a sort of. Um, I'm not a massive fan of private education, I will have to say. So my kids mm-hmm. were state educated. So I'm not um, sitting here going, oh, I think private education is great. I will admit that having gone there, much as it screwed me up probably a bit socially, mm-hmm. it did give me massive opportunity. That's probably where I got my kind of drama sort of voice on. I, we used to debating and stuff like that. I think, oh, actually, maybe that's what gave me a voice on stage. Oh, wow. And music and languages. And so, yeah, it was massively So, privileged. of course, you wouldn't have had a, an indigenous Dorset accent if you went to that exactly. school, would you? Exactly. So I never... I I mean, I did, I did sort of rebel quite a bit. So when I, by the, I then got to another private school. So I really wanted to go to the local school at thirteen. So you're really getting my life history. And my parents had always been in the private system. They'd worked in it. They'd been educated in boarding schools. They hated it, but no one was like, "Well, if we all hate it so much, let's go to a, um, a state school." So I really made a big bid at thirteen to go to the local state school. And then they were like, "Well, why don't you sit the scholarship exams for the local public school?" You know, that public school being in that system a private school and like an idiot I went and sat the scholarship exam and didn't try and screw it up which is what I should have done got the scholarship so they sent me there for free and I hated it so I got myself kind of ejected from that school after a year and then went to the local state school what what, what kind of behavior did you get up to to well it wasn't the best private school in the world so a lot of people were there because they'd been ejected from the good private school so you just had to throw a lot at the wall really Mm -hmm. and see what stuck so sort of a cocktail of so uh, did you play rugby in that as well not in that school (laughs) in the first school if you're the only girl what did you do at sports well they did sports and then by the end of the time so when I started I was the only girl by the end there were eight girls so five years in there were eight girls in total 
total, but all different ages across the five years. So they painted a netball pitch on the staff <laughs> car park, <laughs> but because there were only eight of us and we were all different sizes and ages, <laughs> so it wasn't enough for two teams. And also, it, it relied on the teachers moving their cars. Otherwise, we couldn't. Otherwise, we couldn't get. Onto did the you thing. play against other so schools at netball? Uh, well, we could, yeah, we did, but we were pretty rubbish because we never played against another team in our own mm. school. And the, for some reason, I don't know why they didn't just get the boys playing netball, but they didn't. So we did much more sort of cricket and football. They realised, I think, about two years in that girls weren't supposed to play rugby. I think there was actually, I think there was, I, I might be exaggerating because it wasn't 100 years ago. It was in the 70s. I think that it was actually either illegal or certainly very frowned well, they, upon for girls to play of rugby. Of course, there, there yeah. were probably some scientific... Uh, yeah. reason why it you would be bad for your womb yeah, or something. something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something and we as we can see it didn't affect me because I've had kids. That's but it was um <laughs> so yeah, so it was a weird it was a really weird it was a weird upbringing and it honestly probably did so were you were good at school then? What 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 did what, what, did, what did your parents teach then? Uh, they taught English and French. Okay. So yeah. you, can you speak French? I can speak un petit peu français okay. and I can also speak Dutch. Dutch and and why? Very, why uh, can you speak Dutch? I thought it's just a brilliant life skill that uh, would be really useful because obviously none of the Dutch speak English. Uh, no, it was because my kids are half Dutch. So oh, okay. I, I procreated with a Dutch man. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it was handy to be able to How hear. How did you meet was. someone from Holland? How did that work? He out? was when I first worked in telly. Uh, my first job in telly when I was twenty-one. Uh, it was a channel called the Children's Channel because in those days they just called things what they did. You know, that was it. It's a channel for children, and they had um they had a sort of feed that went out across the Benelux. So he would do some of the voiceovers. He'd come over to London and do the Dutch voices. And so, you know, this is when we were all in our 20s and we were all out all the time. And, yeah, he was, um, yeah, I introduced him to the only uh, spliff he's ever smoked was with me. So I assumed all Dutch people like like smoking weed. And it mm -hmm. turns out they're not that bothered. We're all the ones who go mm -hmm. to honours. Well. So we were at a party and I was like, you know, uh, hey, you know. So, when so was this? What this year is this? Early, early 90s, 91, 92. And how old were you then? 21, 22. Mm. Yeah, so sort of a bit starting out in my kind of job working life yeah and he was like no I've never I was like do you want to skin up he's like no I've never never smoked in my life I said well you're going to ah, tonight ah. and uh, obviously then yeah never looked back I love that well I'm not with him anymore so we did look back <laughs> for so a while so did you get to speak Dutch yeah I speak very good Nederlands that is for your Nederlands fans I like that yeah See, okay. the one person who speaks Dutch who listens to this will be like, that was real. That was I've got a big uh, following in, in the Netherlands, Have you? actually. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. I did stand up over there. Yeah, I do uh, quite yeah. a lot over there, yeah. Uh, do you do it in Dutch then? I do it in Dutch and it in, in English, yeah. So mm. my daughter works at the Comedy Cafe, actually, in Amsterdam, okay. where you've probably played. I think played. that's where I did, yeah. Well, she, uh, she works the bar there. Wow. Yeah, she does. Oh, that's great, man. She's 11, but I was like, you might as well start young, you know. So, no, she's not. <laughs> 21. <laughs> so what I want to know... Uh, did you have a dog when you were a child living in... Liverpool? We had a dog only when I was 16, and by then I would pretty much moved out. I was kind of, you know, hanging okay. about with, um, you know, the wrong kind of people and very rarely home. So I didn't... We didn't really have a dog when I lived at home. I am now dying to have... If you've noticed any of my recent social media, it's been about, obviously... Um, my breakup and I've been thinking I, I did put a poll out on Twitter recently going boyfriend or dog mm -hmm. the dog won by loads what I wasn't expecting was my boyfriend to vote for dog so I was like okay <laughs> what dog would you have if you could have well my one my best friend Joe, she has got um standard wire haired dachshunds and they're so sweet mm. so they're not like your average sausage dog so there I've got a kind of real affection for her dogs and she lives on my street um so we hang out a lot and she said if I get a dog that gets on with her dogs 
it can be sort of fostered by her when I'm on the road. Mm. So maybe that kind of dog. That's Any a good dog, idea. really. Have you got a dog? Oh, yeah, I've always had what dogs. What dogs yeah. have you got? Well, at the moment, I've got what they call a long dog, and that's a combination of a whippet and a greyhound a together. Dog. I'm trying to visualise that. Dog. Well, it's like it a, a lot of exercise. It's like a then. small greyhound and a large whippet. That's what it's like. Is it? But they no, they don't need a lot of exercise. They're the surge dogs. You oh, know. so they need quick, quick and little. Yeah, they just go out and get it out of this and then come yeah. back and lie around. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I love all dogs. That's like us with our career, isn't it? We get out, get it out of our system. It's get very much quick. like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. You just stand there and suddenly. Yeah, quick burst, and, and then, then we're knackered. I have to go to yeah. sleep. Yeah. So the dog suits my <laughs> lifestyle. So, are you? Have you? Are you? Have you got that country thing about you? I mean, would you say that you're like a, a country girl at heart because of your upbringing? Or have you acclimatised now so much to the urban environment? Or do you still Yeah, I don't feel that? like a country girl, really, because I left young. So I, I left at 16 and went okay. to Salisbury, which felt like this was before it was the site of the poisonings. Uh, so when it was just a nice, you know, cathedral city. So I went there for um, to do my A-levels at college, and then I went moved to London when I was 18. So I kind of feel like I've... All my adult life's been in cities. I've lived either in London or Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. Is Salisbury a city? I suppose it is because it it's, it's got a cathedral. But it's hardly an uh, inner city, urban type of place. Well, no, it's it? not. But it's also definitely not like the countryside. So sure. I was all, I was always drawn to cities. Whereas, ironically, my son, as you may know, is a zookeeper. He's always been dying to get out of the city. So he's okay. had the upbringing I wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, he's brought up in Camden, everything on his doorstep, and he just okay. couldn't wait to get out. Um, whereas I couldn't wait to get out. I, when I go to the country, I feel like a, like an evacuee, you know. You know when they have eggs so you have your little outside, sort of, um, suitcase steal eggs with and start on. fights with the yeah. local kids and that. So. <laughs> an oik, you're yeah. an oik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think they'd like you in the country, though, Jeff. You'd be all right. They would. They would accept you in Durdledore. They wouldn't run you out of town. <laughs> Durdledore is on the coast. Is that? Yeah. In Dorset. In Dorset. Yeah. Look, I quite fancy being a bit of a fossil hunter. Yeah. Well, you'd like Durdledore. Mm. That's the place for you. Okay. Yeah. The Jurassic Coast. They oh, call yeah. it it's for yeah. people like us. Yeah. yeah. Fossils. Yeah. <laughs> yeah fossils. Mm. We go fossil hunting. So you did your A levels at Salisbury. Yes. So the next bit I want to know about is how you get to go to Goldsmiths and study English and drama. So you have done your research. Well done, Jeff. Um, I did, well, I did drama and English A-levels, and then I actually screwed up quite bad. The reason I did Goldsmiths, and I'm really glad I did, was because I was, I was sort of fairly... I was kind of hanging out with not the best people from 16 to 18 and I screwed up my A-levels quite badly. So I was going for Oxbridge entrance. um, I was going for sort of Bristol, all those kind of places. And I basically just didn't get the grades. I totally screwed up and luckily got enough. At the time, Goldsmiths were quite based on interview as well and they'd interviewed everyone and because it was drama as well. I think you could sort of fudge it a bit more than if it was a purely academic degree. So I was just lucky that they took me, really. It was not the plan, but actually worked out really, really well. Um, I was there when, you know, at the time when Damien Hurst and that lot were doing... Um, what year know, is were doing this? the arts, 87, okay, so yeah, late yeah. 80s. Um, and then, yes, and Julian Clary had just finished my course. They used to do these, like, cabaret mm-hmm. nights with all... So lots of really interesting people doing drama and art there back then, and it's still a great place. And that got me into London, and that got me into working mm-hmm. in telly. So even though I wouldn't be saying to anyone listening, look, kids, fuck up your A-levels, but it sort of worked out for me that w- I did. Was New Cross a shock to you, or did you acclimatise quite easily? I look back at it. I went to do a Goldsmiths alumnus speech, and they showed me all around like I was, like, some someone... Uh, and it just looked exactly the same. And I just remembered how unhappy I was there because I just was totally out of my depth. I didn't know what I was doing. And I, it's taken me decades to show that I'm a bit lost sometimes. I don't really, you know, I've got the gift of the gab. But inside, 
I'm like a sort of snail without a shell. And I never would have admitted that then. So actually, it must have been really hard coming. And I just, it was really weird. I got a wave of like, and because my kids are older than I was when I went to Goldsmiths, I was like, my God, if I think about my kids doing this when they were just 18 on their own, mm. completely different kind of culture. So, so yeah, I think I was quite lost. And I, didn't, I don't really have friends from those days, weirdly, whereas, whereas I've got friends from my first job on in, but I didn't really fit in, maybe. Yeah. So 87, that's Acid House, did you Yeah, I did. I worked involved for this, in that? Well, I won't mention the guy's name. Um, I'm almost tempted to because he had such a great name for what he did. But So in the summer, I used to make my money because um, I was sort of supporting myself through all of that because I'd sort of left home quite young. And I worked in, I was desperate to get into TV and film. And so I got this job working in Battersea in a studio where they filmed like pop kind of pop videos and as they then were and um, ads and stuff and they also built sets for things in Pinewood so it's a construction company so I used to, used to drive to Pinewood and with these sets wow. and stuff so it was a quite an interesting job I mean not well paid but I sort of had it was interesting anyway I used to work in the evenings there was this guy <laughs> that used to turn up in a different car I'm not exaggerating different car pretty much every night very good looking kind of flash guy with a beautiful girlfriend it was always it was always the same girlfriend not always the same car and he would pay me in cash, large amounts of cash, to just be on the front desk. And if anyone came, to call him and he would bugger off out the back. So this is what I did. I didn't Obviously, I knew it was a bit dodgy, but I was like, for the money, great. And then he started paying me in what was then called Ecstasy, now MDMA. And this <laughs> was before Ecstasy was a big thing. And he was the person who was setting up all those first motorway kind of raves. And this was before, so I used to go to the fridge in Brixton, um, clubbing in the fridge, and this was when Soul to Soul and all of those were there. And it was before, or just when ecstasy was starting to be a sort of thing. So I was an early adopter of ecstasy. Well, you were in the eye so of the storm of that yeah, whole thing then, yeah, really, weren't you, as so a young person? Young person working in that place, getting paid in dirty notes and ecstasy. It's very much like the life I have now again. It's funny, because Malcolm so, Hardy used to pay me in cocaine sometimes. So we haven't got a lot of cash. Yeah. We've got a bit of a cash flow problem. Yeah. ER and a bit of some, yeah. wrapped up newspaper well, there, there being Charlie. Yeah, it probably was a similar time as well. We were yeah. probably because that was when was when was that? Oh no, been? no, it was no, no, because no, no, it's much later. Okay. But, but what I was doing exactly at that time is I stopped work and went to university as a mature student in eighty seven. And where did you go? I went to the University of East London, which okay. was formerly North East London Polytechnic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, uh, my whole life changed because of that. But so we I were doing the same thing. I was about 32 the then. Yeah. Because we also worked at Camden. Is that a different period? I worked in Camden Markets and I also, so paying my way through uni, so I also used to do um, Sundays, I would work on Camden Market. I ran a, well, I started off working for someone who, she had a stall for textile clothing. She was a, she was a sort of, um, what's it called, like a costume person for film primarily film, a bit of telly, and at a certain point she would flog off some of her stock and she would flog it off on a market stall in Camden. And after a few weeks there, I asked her if I could run it for her on a commission basis. She used to pay me by the hour. And I just sort of said, I, I just, you know, I wanted a bit more of a hustle. So, so this I is 1991? No, this is still late 80s. Okay. So I was doing the job in the studio um, and I was doing the... Because I was working stuff. in Camden at that time as well. Well, because yeah, well, I had my, my stall, as it became, was, <laughs> under, was by the 
uh, you know the railway bridge, so just mm-hmm. where the stables start, but that cobbled bit, yeah. so just where it yeah, says Camden, yeah. that's where I, I was the first stall on the left. I was down in the, I think they called it the designer market at that oh, time. Oh, you were fancy. I was, I was just like yeah. grabbing around on a street corner for tenors, but uh, you it were, was, yeah. It was, uh, well, it was fantastic. It because was. I had, do you remember I'd, Eric, who used to run the market? Well, I think I do, yeah, yeah but, yeah. but I, you mean the, I, I, there's so many names and yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, sort of like a, po- a kind of posh, eccentric, sort of older. Yeah, I think so. I say older, he's Did he used to go around getting the rent or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like a tweed jacket sure. and yeah didn't mind it was a drink. great experience working on the Camden market in those yeah. days because it was a really trendy place in those days and it was hard it? work people don't realise when people mm. moan about you know oh, I've got to get in the car and drive three hours for a gig I yeah. never forget those days where you're up so sure. early on your feet doesn't matter what the weather's like so. you used to drink during the, we used to drink as well while we were you know not so much during but after uh, sometimes if it was really there were a lot cold, of drugs and there were loads of drugs days, yeah the whole yeah everybody was doing drugs and I was and for me it was I was older so, so I was in my early 30s then so but I was still quite young now when I think about yeah, it yeah yeah we thought we were old in our 30s yeah. didn't we until we realised what old was That's fantastic yeah I love that yeah I love that um, so, so we've probably met before basically Jeff. yeah we, I wonder well we'll certainly have been but there in is, each other's I always orbits. thought that you know in my introduction I, I, I always feel like I know you yeah but I don't know you but I always, there's something about you that makes me think that we I've met, met in, a, in, a, in a previous life Probably done so many drugs when we met, Jeff. We were like, I don't know. I don't know who you are. We might have been married years ago and we just <laughs> can't remember it. We just well, blanked you it know, out. When you, s- you know, sometimes when you get older, I don't know if you're old enough or have had enough relationships for this, but sometimes I've walked past people and gone, how are you doing? All right, walked past. I go, I've just walked past someone that, you know, I used to have sex with that person and now I'm just, hello, how are you? How mad is that? You're, you you're not admitting to doing that, <laughs> I'm, though, I'm are you? I'm keeping a dignified hey, about, silence. <laughs> now, I want to talk to you about uh, the, the drama course that you did. Um, what was English and drama? How, does, how did that pan out, percentage-wise? It was they? more, yes, you did more drama. So we did loads of, um, it was actually quite hard work. I think we did two d- full days a week where you do everything from, like, set design to lighting to directing, and you properly kind of put in mm-hmm. two full days, which students obviously never do. Um, you normally just have a couple of lectures. And then you did, so you did all of the English degree apart from the very early stuff. So you did everything else. That I think that you didn't have to do, like, Chaucer and the kind of really old stuff, which I hated, so I was happy not to do that. So you basically did almost the whole of the English degree and then a drama So what book? So You're doing Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare and, and putting on Shakespeare plays? Yeah, but it well. wasn't all old. So we did do Shakespeare, but a lot of sort of, uh, you know, Alan Akebourne and Michael oh, okay. Frayn and all, all sorts of um, Ibsen, So you were Chekhov. doing, you were acting and putting I on I wanted to act. That's why I wanted to do it. Yeah, I wanted so did to I. act, yeah. But I couldn't. Hey. That was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was shit at it. Almost said something. So that was the slight hitch. I was really good at acting when I was with people who couldn't act. But as soon as right. anyone could, I was like, oh, no, I'm not the best. <laughs> um, so, I, But also, I just didn't, I don't know about you, but I did didn't have the um what I'm saying about how I was at uni I didn't really have any confidence and at the time I got to know a couple of um actors in fact I was renting a flat off a guy who um had, well he played Vaseline in London's Burning and Mark Arden lovely lovely guy he was in the wow show with yeah, Stephen I know Frost him. yeah I know him. yeah I've been yeah, in something with yeah, him yeah he's well. a ni- yeah. really nice guy he ended up being my landlord so I got to know him a bit and I just looked at what was going on for him and all his mates who I got to know, and I thought, God, they're really successful actors, and even they are taking a lot of knockbacks. Mm. And I just watched them. They were probably, well, yeah, they're the same age as you, I guess. They were probably yeah. in their early 30s then. And I just knew that I, and also for women, it's still a bit of a problem, but mm. back then it was all about just looking the right way. And I just knew I didn't have that kind of traditional, beautiful, skinny, everyone's going to want to cut. And I just knew I was too insecure to do it. So I kind of, bailed before I really even tried I did a few bits and pieces but I just 
I just like the confidence and I I, I think I was the opposite yeah. I had all the confidence but not really the skill it was uh, just confidence well we had the fact we didn't have the skill in common <laughs> we were unskilled <laughs> <laughs> so when you were doing when you were on this call where did you make the trans how about where does comedy come in at this this time is there have you thought about comedy during this period have you well, been I to worked, comedy clubs have yeah you I always watched a lot of comedy I always loved comedy but then I worked as you may know I worked so I got into television straight out of uni and then quite quickly, I ended up, work, well, I ended up working for MTV, was like my second job in the sort of mid-90s. And then we ended up working on South Park. So even though MTV at the time was nothing to do with Comedy Central, but they they now are owned by the same, um, they're all owned by Viacom CBS. But anyway, we ended up, um, I worked on the international side in television and got involved in South Park and then ended up working with a couple of production companies in comedy. So I got involved in comedy from a behind-the-scenes TV executive way. Could I yeah. just take you back to how that happened? The, I mean, what, what does it mean? How did you get into TV and, and what does it mean to be an executive? I'm still not really sure what yeah, that well it not, and So you left, you left Goldsmith. I left, yeah, I left Goldsmith, thought I wanted to be in television production, gave up on wanting to be on screen. What, the, the so technical actually side? Uh, actually, cre you know, yeah, producing shows okay. and, and sort of, you know, being, you know, whatever it might have been, mm -hmm. but sort of on the creating the show's mm -hmm. side. But then I ended up just falling into it when I was at the Children's Channel. I got into the um, sort of buying and selling TV shows side of it. They used to buy a lot of their content. So how did, how did you get much. that job? What, what, so you've uh, left I just college. Well, I just, I literally wrote, I mean, this is okay. going to make me sound like in the days of carrier pigeons. I wrote, as I've told my children, when they're like, I can't get a job. I wrote um, 500 letters. I wrote 100 letters one week. Another hundred. Did the you photocopy them? Uh, right. <laughs> I, look, I looked up the details of who to cut, you know, who to write to in the phone books, and I just wrote all these letters and then called to follow up. And then I managed to get a. I I volunteered to do free work at the BBC, but there was no formal internship. Got myself attached to a couple of productions, um, writing them up as a sort of like case study, and then took that case study around a few production companies. Um, hoping I'd get a job as a runner and just happened to get an entry-level job doing this side of things. And then it sort of stuck. So I ended up on the business side of television, buying and selling programmes, wow. which I didn't mean to do. And then moved to Holland. And then it was a really good thing to be able to do that because they wanted a native English speaker who could help them sell their formats and stuff. And then applied for a job in the paper back then for um, working at MTV. So this would have been when I was about 27. And it was also, so all these jobs were in the business side of television. So I became someone who basically made money out of ideas. So I would find a way, if someone had a good idea, I would find a way to get them some cash for it from people around what, the world. What, to get the programme made? To get the programme made, or once it was made, to make some money back on the programme. So, so you must have been earning some money yourself with it. I this. did all right. Yeah, I was lucky. Um, yeah, I was lucky with the career what I've had. What car did you have? <laughs> I've never been at all... Material things honestly don't blow my skirt up at all. <laughs> so I've never had fancy cars. I've got like a vintage Vespa and an old Mini... And that's not a euphemism. And I've got, um, so I, I've got, I've always had, um, yeah, I've never been that interested in material things. I always knew I was kind of borrowing the job. You know, I had a fancy job title. Mm -hmm. I sat on, you know, on the ITV board and on the Viacom board. So I was a, I was a kind of proper person with a proper job. But I, all, I never thought I was that person. I never thought, oh, I'm a senior vice president of a huge, you know, company. I just thought, well, I'm borrowing this job title for now I'm this and at some point they won't want me anymore or I won't want them anymore. And then I'll just be my kid's mum and whatever I do next. So I never really lived like I had that. So how many kids thing. have you got at this got time? Got two. Okay. Yeah, I had my kids um, when I was at MTV. So actually I got to MTV not knowing I was pregnant. So I, I sort of took the job and then had to say, oh, 
didn't realize when you you know that I was having yeah so I had my, my I had both my kids are MTV babies yeah Hi British comedian of the year Jeff Innocent here I just want to take some time out to tell you about my comedy course it usually runs as six weekly 3 hour sessions on Sunday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. at the famous Up the Creek Comedy Club in Greenwich South London on the course, amongst other things, you will learn how to write original jokes and comedy routines, discover your unique comic persona, study performance skills such as stagecraft, presence, audience interaction, and microphone technique. You will also receive constant advice from myself and any guest tutors and have the opportunity to perform your very first gig. It's aimed at absolute beginners and people who are already performing stand-up comedy but are looking to get better or anyone who just fancies learning about stand-up comedy. So you don't have to want to be a comedian. But I warn you, you probably will by the end of the course. It takes place upstairs at Up the Creek, which is a fantastic space for a workshop with its own stage and lighting, and it's totally conducive to the studying, discussing and performing of stand-up comedy. There's also usually a whole social element that develops in these workshops, which is totally out of my hands, where new friends and comedy comrades are made. It's always a very supportive culture. In fact, two of the students got pregnant at the same time at the previous workshop. So if you're trying for a baby, maybe this is the workshop for you. Our end-of-course show with invited audience of family and friends takes place downstairs on the main stage so the students get to experience the bright lights of performing at Up the Creek Comedy Club. And it's all professionally filmed and edited so you get a souvenir of your performance. Now, I've been performing at Up the Creek for 25 years. And it's about time they brought the next act on because I'm running out of material. Forgive me, I couldn't resist that. You will learn how to write better jokes than that. The point is I still get the same thrill every time I walk on that stage. The most recent course is now full, but they run regularly throughout the year. So for more details about the course and other options, please visit www.jevitasant.com where there should be a link or go directly to www.innocentacademy.com Now, back to the podcast. Now, motivational speaking. Where does that come from? How did that, where did, how did that develop? That developed from you being an executive and working yeah. on TV. So, yeah. And you, you forged the career with that. Is this you performing again, do you think? Or? Well, that was, so that all came actually because of the comedy. So I realised, so when I got into, so having worked, um, so Comedy Central was owned by the company that then also bought MTV. So I worked in comedy behind the scenes for about two decades. So I'd worked with a lot of stand-ups, mainly US stand-ups actually, but I'd sort of been very involved in comedy. And then because of the nature of the job I had, you know, working at that sort of level in television, I did a lot of like panels and speeches and interviews and, you know... That's just part of the job. Part of the job. So, you know, Bloomberg Television would want a live comment from Cannes about whatever it was, you know, kids' animation or whatever, and I'd be interviewed. So I got very sort of media trained, I guess. And of course, you're already a trained actor as well, Yeah, exactly. So I'd done... So it's sort of... So I sort of did all of that. Then I got into stand-up when I was 45, um... I can tell you how, why in a minute, but I got, so I ended up doing stand up and seeing it as totally separate from my day job. I was still doing the day job, mm-hmm. and I just thought oh, these are two like. What, what, was this about six years ago? Uh, yeah, six years, six and a half okay. years ago. Yeah, and what so are you sixty nine born then? Are you? Yeah, sixty nine. Okay. Yeah, and I ended up so I ended up doing both and very separate. 
And then I all and I, my my name in television, my birth name's Caroline, not Callie, but my nickname's always been Callie. So I even had the two separate names, so that when I was on stage as a comedian, I was Callie. When I was at work, I was Caroline, and it just helped keep it separate in my mind, but also for googling you know i didn't really want my job knowing i and, was out and, doing and what, comedy so what comedians are you watching it's just like as most british most people's there's comedy on tv all yeah, the time comedy on t- i mean i lo- i loved all, i guess growing up it was people like victoria wood mm-hmm. and you know people who I, I sort of knew women could be funny you know jennifer saunders mm. was when Dawn french were massive when i was a teenager but i always loved um american stand-up that was always what i loved and it was joan rivers who got me into stand-up so i got to know Jane Rivers. So I you were doing your talking and the stuff that goes with the job. With the job. And uh, then you meet Joan Rivers whilst you're doing this? Yeah, so she, we used to go to, um, so we used to go to kind of like conventions. They're just like, you know, you might as well go to a double glazing convention. They just happen to be about television. They're not okay. really glamorous, but they are in nice locations. And the only upside is you get to go with amazing on-screen talent. But I was very much the boring business person trying to make money out of the talent. So we would run events for these kind of, um, for jaded, pissed TV executives, and we'd get the talent to do a turn in the hope they would buy, you know, whatever the show was. That uh, So Joan Rivers, um, I got to know quite well, and really hit it off with her. She was such an inspiration. Is I she very I, different no. from the persona? Well, now she's dead, so quite different. But yeah, at the time, she was... Um, no, she. W- I just hadn't really realised what a kind of... Um, I didn't realise what a feminist she was. I was like, bloody hell, when you think what she did, like we talk about feminism now and, mm-hmm. and breaking through glass ceilings, but we think what Joan Rivers was doing in Hollywood in the 60s. And it was it was incredible hearing her stories sure. and what she went through. So I, I sort of, I'd always admired her, but I, I totally like fell for her in every possible way. And then she said to me, so the last time I ever saw her, which was not long before she died, uh, she said to me, you know, what you do for me when you introduce me to the stage and you're keeping the room warm, everyone's pissed and you've just got to keep them entertained. That is kind of comedy warm, what you're doing, basically a five to ten minute set. Why don't you should actually do stand up? And I said, Joan, I'm 45. You know, I've got two kids. One of my kids has got special needs. I've got a massive day job. Uh, it's too late. And she was 81 at the time. And she just looked at me and said, I'm 81. You know, at 45, you're right in the thick of it. Just do it. And it took an 81-year-old telling me... As a forty, I would have just thought it was too late. I thought, oh, that shit. You know, I, I would have loved to be an actor. Well, that I is late. I mean, I started yeah. when I was forty-one, which was unheard of. I yeah. mean, certainly I now it's unheard, and you've done 40s. that much later. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably against the laws of the natural laws of comedy. And also, there is a. I don't want to put too much down to gender, and I certainly don't feel sort of sorry for myself in terms of the mm-hmm. way the comedy world treats me. I feel I do all right in it. I appreciate there are some real challenges for, for lots of different people mm-hmm. in it for lots of reasons, sure. but people generally have treated me really well and I've been really lucky. But it is true to say that I think as a woman, women in their 40s and 50s are not as marketable or acceptable in sure. the world as men in their 40s and 50s. And so um, I know that from, <laughs> from my dating life that, you know, men my age all want to be dating women 20 years younger. Not all, but lots. And similarly, I think so on stage in live circuits and, you know, we gig together a bit and I, I feel like I get booked. Well, I do get booked a lot and it's just a meritocracy, isn't it? They know I'm solid and I'll do well and I'll get booked. And I, d- I do do some telly, but I definitely think there are some shows. Well, there are some shows where my agent's been told outright well, your trouble is a book in Cali, our audience are like 16 to 34. And and I think, well, audiences in clubs are that age. Who do you think we're playing to? Like, I'm not going into the Women's Institute to make them laugh. I'm going into Top Secret where people are, as you know, because you gig with me, that yeah. a lot of our, the clubs we go to, it's young people. So if we can't appeal to mock the week's audience, 
you know, for example, I'm not saying Mock the Week have said that about me, but if we can't appeal to a young panel show audience, we wouldn't be working on the circuit. So there's a sort of ageism that's partly generally about age, and I do think there's it's possibly even a bit worse about women of a I'm certain sure age. Is. I'm yeah. sure it is, yeah. as it is in, in society in yeah. general. Did, did, was there ever an issue, not your age then, but as being a woman in when you were working in the business side of things? Well, I was the well. first, I was the youngest and the only woman on the Colton television board when I was 31. Is that still an issue that in boardrooms? Yeah, it it's yeah, still an issue. And so I, in my time at sort of board level, it's, yeah. But I never really thought about it. I do know when I first did my first episode of QI, and I remember just, but I was quite nervous, obviously, thinking I'm just not going to be good enough or funny enough. And then I remember thinking, oh, but you spent your whole life in rooms full of blokes who think they're funnier and better and cleverer than you. So just treat it like a board meeting, only be a bit funnier. So I, I was just determined to be heard. And I think with panel shows, as long as you give them enough to work with, you'll make the edit. Sure. You know, I just went on the basis, I'm diving into everything. <laughs> They'll have to put me <laughs> I think in. you have to do that on those. Because <laughs> otherwise it can be over, can't it? You've got to get in over. quick as well. Like I think QI yeah. is the only thing I've ever wanted to be on, actually. Yeah. I don't want to be on any of those, and I, I, have to I still say haven't been invited. Well, it's my... F- yeah, it's can my you have a word? I'll have a word, have with, a word. with a couple of clubs if you yeah, have a word sure. with QI. Yeah, sure. I'll call Sandy right um, now. Now, obviously, having known you, but it's not unheard of for someone to come from a corporate business background and become a stand-up comedian. I'm thinking of Jimmy Carr. Yeah. But... Has there ever been a transitional conflict or contradiction for you between the world of business and the world of stand-up comedy? Cause, because, of course, stand-up comedy is often about challenging the norms that are associated with the corporate world, uh, particularly in so-called alternative comedy, So, which started out with an alternative political agenda. Yeah, so yeah. did you ever have that conflict yourself yeah. or contradiction at least? Yeah, so what... So, so to begin with I kept them completely separate and I was always really kind of quite careful about what I would and wouldn't say and then it looks if you look at kind of how it's gone it looks like it was really well planned and it really wasn't so I decided in my kind of late 40s I had a bit of a sort of a bit of burnout really I'd been the sole breadwinner you know like loads of people will be listening by the way I don't want I don't need you to get your tiny violins out but I'd been the one who'd earned the money I'd raised the kids my son had had quite a difficult time you know um as you know he's autistic it'd been quite a difficult couple of decades and when he left home to go to college I just had a bit of an implosion really I just I just got very depressed and kind of burnt out and so I needed to make some changes for my mental health so I ended up leaving um, Viacom, where I still was, um, uh, with very very amicably, you know, I've got nothing but good things to say about them and how that was, how I handled it, how they handled it. So it was was a very happy divorce. But what I then realised was, I didn't realise I could do this motivational speaking. I had no idea that that would take off because when I was at Viacom, I couldn't have done it. Viacom wouldn't have wanted me going and speaking at Microsoft's annual conference because they'd have been like, you're our person. So suddenly I started getting these bookings and it was a mate of mine actually who was an agent. She's not anymore, um, but she was just a mate who I knew from the TV world. She was a comedy agent. And she said, Kelly, why are you keeping comedy and business separate? The, the sell for you is motivational speaking. That's how you're going to make your money. And I just thought, really? And I had no idea that I would be so booked. And I think the reason I'm, I'm booked is because of the reinvent. People love the idea that there's a middle-aged woman first of all who was on a board so but the boardroom is less has less people like me so that's interesting for them so sort of minority sort of gender wise in in that environment and then who reinvented at a time when women are told to quietly go and be invisible so I think the reason I get booked a lot is because of that story they like the story and then of course the benefit of being a stand-up is you're 
you're a good motivational speaker mm-hmm. because most a lot of people have brilliant stories to tell. We, you know, we were talking sure. about that off air. They have brilliant stories to tell, but they don't know how to tell them. Well, uh, you know, uh, my story might not be the most fascinating one. You know, I've not sort of saved lives or kind of some the channel, you know, or anything like that. But uh, or climbed Everest. But I do. But I can tell a story. <laughs> so that's so that's how I get. So the, the motivational speaking, I get booked. And I think a lot of comedians are a bit jealous. They're like, how are you getting all those bookings when you're quite new? But I'm getting them because of my business career. So I feel like, well, I did put in 25 years of hard graft sure. to get these. Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And I thoroughly recommend them. You've been to Edinburgh and done solo shows? I have. About three, is I've that? done two solo shows and one, uh, one two-hander. Yeah. And you, is that right, you won the Malcolm Hardy Award? Or well, it was the, um, well, it, was it, was the it was the... Nominated or... It was the, what was it called? I want to say Cunning Puts. No, it was, a, it was a sort of spoof thing they did. I can't remember what it was called, but it was about... Um, God, what was it called? They did a thing one year that was a kind of, they had a spoof award as well. And I can't remember what, it was like a stunt or something. You had to do oh, a, okay. and I, it was me and Catherine Bohart. So I'll show okay. Catcall, whatever that one year was that they did that thing. So it wasn't a normal Malcolm Howdy award. Oh, it was okay. a weird thing that got umbrellaed okay. by them. Yeah. But you, so you, you've been to Edinburgh several times. Yeah. Um, did you do that while you weren't really established on the circuit as much as you are now? Yeah. Was so that a way of you doing some comedy? without having to rely on being booked. Yeah, yeah. so I'd always gone to Edinburgh. So as an executive, I'd always gone to Edinburgh and been the person everyone wanted at all the events and all the parties. And suddenly, obviously, as an open micer and a new comedian, no one gave a shit, as it should be, because I I, I was nobody comedically. And so I did go to Edinburgh, I think from my first year, and just did, you know, spots, you know, the crappiest spots going. And and then Catherine Bohart and I did Cat Call, we don't what, was that, what was that? That, that was show? so. That was uh, done through our names, you know, Catherine, Cat, Callie, Call. So Cat Call, and it was a kind of fem- looking at being a woman at different. As uh, she was in her twenties, I was in my forties. Both ginger, um, yeah, both both bisexual. So what's it like to be? So it was kind of looking at the same kind of world through different eyes. Was that successful? Did yeah, you that have did really. Numbers come yeah, in we and were really lucky. Nice reviews and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we really, but we marketed the shit out of that. I think there's one thing me and Catherine knew how to do. It was market it, and I think it was an appealing concept for people. Like we made it all look lovely. It was an interesting thing, you know. Two quite new comedians, different age is complimentary sort of looking talk it so i think and it was actually it wasn't a bad show i mean we each did we literally each did 25 minutes but we made sure it did actually stand up as a show together it it probably was a bit more advanced than what some people do as to i'm not saying we were more talented at all but we did put in a lot of thought into what the show should be and i knew a bit from my other hat on what would work even though i didn't necessarily have the talent to be amazing but I, we did it and Catherine got signed by hannah chambers out of that you know so she and you didn't she, i didn't no people were like coming in going <laughs> oh and literally elbowing me out of the way i was like hold on a minute you've only come because <laughs> you know me woman? so yeah <laughs> Catherine got ca- Catherine got courted by everybody and i didn't yeah so so um, you, you continue to go to Edinburgh, though, don't you? you is it, are you going to go when we when it resumes? Will you go again, or or did you see it as a way of doing comedy in lieu of being an act that gets into clubs, or is it? No, by the time I because I, I I've been really lucky with the bookings in clubs. I've sort of always done all right with them, and obviously I'm getting better bookings and better slots now. It was more I just sort of thought I wanted to work out how to do a solo show and and. 
you know how to write sort of stuff and actually I quite like I'm a probably a more natural storyteller than I am a kind of gag smith so the Edinburgh format suits me really well I understand. yeah yeah I understand. it suits me well and also my agent just said you know you know I was with different agents for each of the shows I did but they both but each time said you really need to do Edinburgh so you've been doing let's see, what, six years six just six over years. six now, years so yeah. this question uh, this might not be a question you can answer because I don't think six years in I would have had a good answer for this but do you have you got a, a strategy with your comedy you know have you do you have a, a plan or are you, are you over and beyond being funny? Which I don't think I did yeah. after six years. I, 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 get, I think my plan is more what I don't want to do. So I've realised, so what I don't want, and I sincerely mean this, I don't want fame and I don't want to be on everything there is on the telly. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of things I would absolutely love to be on. So um, No, I mean, yeah, I so mean a, an artistic plan uh, uh, well, or a, 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 an intellectual uh, direction yeah so I think so what I'm and, and it's an interesting time you've asked this because at six years in as you know I mean I think Seinfeld said you're as old in uh, you're a, a comedian at, at six years in is like a six-year-old and in terms of how they how good they are at, and how sure. grown up they are at knowing what they're doing and that's absolutely right so I'm still a baby comedically and compared to people like you who I watch you do you know I've watched you at the store I've watched you all over the place you know I'm a long way off that and I'm very aware of the gap between what I can do and what people like you can do. So that, I'm very aware of it. And what I decided during lockdown, well, I, I sort of know how to be a crowd pleaser because of the background I come from. So I know how to, I'm all right at making, you know, people laugh and and I know the sort of things that will appeal to people. It doesn't mean I always have good gigs, but and I'm reasonably polished because I've had a years on stage. Of course. So the bit I don't do is to take risks. So what, I, what I'm doing on stage... I wouldn't say it's hack, but it's very far from what I actually, if you've got to know me well, the sort of things I actually think are funny are much darker. Okay. Much, so I, what I'm so are there yeah. issues? Are there issues that you, are there things that you want to talk about but haven't found a way of doing Yeah, that definitely, yet? definitely. So some of the more kind of, um, yeah, some of the stuff that's a bit closer to the, but I mean, I talk about, you know, one of the things I talk about quite a bit is, you know, dating, being a single mum. And that's all very easy to make funny and a few kind of not quite knob gags, but not far off. But there are some sort of sides of that, actually, that are pretty bloody harrowing. You know, some of the stuff that's gone on. So there there are um, and I'm just starting to roll out not just about dating, but I'm just starting to roll out material now. I'm doing a lot more new since the clubs reopened. And I'm, I've t there's a whole load of stuff I've just been doing about um it's it's about about an ex of mine who who was dying of cancer, throat cancer, and he asked me to give him his last ever blowjob, and what went through my mind, which was not I do not come out of this in good colours, but that story, which was is a funny, I've told mates that story down the pub and they've pissed themselves, but I thought that's just too dark, and the fact that I was such an arsehole about it as well, that's not me. You've seen me on stage. I'm like people are not going to want that. From me. And then I've just been thinking, well, no, there is a funny way to sell that, and actually, even if they think God, you're mm -hmm. despicable. Well, maybe a bit of me is. Sure. So I think I'm uh, I'm trying to work out the gap between sort of being charming and liked, which obviously when you're an MC, I do a lot of MCing, that's really good, and daring to actually show who I really that's am it. a bit more. So yeah, so my, my so my plan is the reason I'm working so hard at the moment on the circuit isn't because I want to become the most booked comic in the UK. It's because now I'm just getting a sense of, oh, this is actually what I do want to be saying. That's it. So I'm just That's getting it. a little sense of what my voice might be. I sound like such a wanker saying that. No, no, no. But I yeah, mean, it's, it's yeah. trying to say that without sounding pretentious, but it's a not, you know, I always say that to people. Like, I'm still work in progress. I've still got, I'm still not quite doing it how I want to do it. Yeah. There's still things I've got to find a way of 
yeah. talking about. Well, we talked about I think that goes on forever. And it's really. a, I know this is, a, I was about to say, it's a hard thing to talk about, but you and I, we did a gig at Backyard and I was trying some material. Not all my stuff, by the way, to anyone listening, is about sex, but this happens to be, I was talking about Viagra and how men the age I date now take Viagra and it's been a really hard thing to talk about on stage because obviously loads of people take it not just older guys and it mm. is a bit of a sensitive issue and and I was trying to find a way to do that and then you said oh actually I've been thinking I wanted to find a way to talk about it and that's the sort of thing where you could do it as a real hack end of the peer yeah. thing but there probably is a more interesting way to do well, it well what happened I think the truth is always the most interesting way and what yeah. happened with me is I took it without telling my wife <laughs> and it really worked and then I thought oh no I can't tell her now so I kept taking it thinking we we're going to have sex just That's in the problem case with it, isn't and it? then we didn't yeah. have sex but I didn't want to tell her I was taking it because I, I wanted it to be a sort of keep that as a secret and then for oh, well. hours there yeah, you are so hard as a rocket yes. yeah it doesn't <laughs> go away yeah 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 costs a lot and it's and it's not <laughs> and it's not environment dependent is it there it is you could be having a row about unloading the dishwasher but and you're there it's such an amazing thing though Viagra isn't it you could actually knock nails in with it and stuff and um, it does give people a headache there apparently so does it well, I think the irony that it gives people. No, I, I think <laughs> I, <don't> yeah, <laughs> I, I think what it is is if you're used to taking class A drugs, it's not an issue. Oh, okay. You have to take it hours before you think you may need right. it, which is also another problem. Yeah. I think what a lot of young people do is think we're going to have sex quick. Take the Viagra. Like, like putting a condom on. Yeah, and uh, no, yeah, I mean you've got to do it when you're having your your lunchtime panini. Hours. And yeah, yeah. Ready. You have to take yeah. it with food, and also yeah. the things, the the side effects of the runny nose. Partial blindness, yeah. heart heartburn. That's if you're used to taking. Oh, it might ease, be the partial blindness, which is why it's working <laughs> for my boyfriends. I thought it was something else, but yeah. <laughs> um, right before you go, uh, your your oh your your um your podcast. Yes, you have a podcast. I do. Namaste, with a fantastic title, Namaste, motherfuckers. How, how, tell me about the title. How, how it did that just come summed about? up my kind of. What I do as a speaker, I guess, and my is that so when I do in inspirational, so called inspirational talks, it's a combination of um, it's usually stuff that's a bit it's funny, but then there'll be sort of goosebumpy stuff, and I'm very honest about my own sort of journeys through mental health and all the shit that happens. Mm -hmm. But in a my whole persona is I am I'm not fearless, I'm not flawless, I'm a hot mess. I've been booked here because I'm supposedly successful, but let me tell you what's really going on here because it's mm -hmm. not what it seems. So the idea there's a lot of effort involved in making things look effortless. So I guess my whole thing is that I genuinely, when I do meditate, I'm quite into into sort of well-being and self-care, but another bit of me is not at all. So I thought the difference between sort of profanity and well-being, putting that together, it sort of sums up how I actually really am and feel. So I just like the title. So it, it's theoretically, the kind of tagline is it's the only podcast where the worlds of work, well-being and comedy collide. Okay. So it's the three things I'm most interested in and the three things and I'm most speaking Isn't that about. a combination you should be taking on stage? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, I never talk about business. I was, I was on stage with Kelly Convey last night, who also comes from the same world as me and she does stuff about oh you know I used to go to Cannes and I did this job and I met Harvey Weinstein she's got brilliant stuff on it and somehow with her it doesn't it's just really funny I think if I came on stage and started saying oh you know I used to go to Cannes and you know I'd be in mm. LA with Joe but people would be like why don't you fuck yeah, yourself yeah yeah <laughs> looking for status yeah and I so I and I'm not sure. a high status okay. act in my content I probably maybe performance wise seem a bit more high status but I'm not so I, I don't really talk about the work stuff and the well-being I don't know is okay. that funny well, it's if it's your truth, it can be funny. Yeah, I've done some things that in well-being that are funny, but yeah, so that's what the podcast okay. is. So you've got the yeah. podcast, yeah. and is there any other platforms that people can look for you, like 
Instagram. Yeah, I Twitter. do loads on Insta and Twitter. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do. I'm on all the. I mean, I'm even on LinkedIn because I do so much in the corporate world. Wow. And actually, weirdly, but that, I'm still on MySpace. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you're still putting stuff out on Napster, <laughs> even though that's been defunct for thirty years. No, I do all of that. So yeah, if people and you, people can see what I'm up to gig wise, I mean, I've got a website good, too. Good, good. So all the usual. Yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. Have you enjoyed yourself? Have I you have. Been okay? I've loved it. Why is it called smart casual? I just need to ask you. I should have probably. It's a bit of a catchphrase I use on stage for, yeah. for when I'm dressed. So, uh, so Sam came up with that title. Sam, good. the producer of this show. Am I smart casual? I think you are actually. Am yeah. I? yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm bang on no, brand. I think you are. Yeah. Excellent. I think you sometimes veer towards smart. Do I? A bit. But yeah. this afternoon, it's but a you're smart casual today. Smart casual today. Yeah. I well, love you, man. Thank love you for having me. Love you. Love you. Love you. Beaton, ladies and gentlemen. Caddy Beaton. This podcast was hosted by me, Jeff Innocent. It was produced and edited by Sam Picconi. Don't forget to like and subscribe and follow me on social media at Jeff Innocent Official on Instagram and Innocent Jeff on Twitter. See you next time for another episode of Smart Casual.